Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora, I'm William Ray and welcome to Black Sheep. This is part two of Headhunter, the story of Horatio Robley. Again, a warning, as you may have guessed from the title, this podcast contains some graphic content. So, a quick recap. Horatio Robley was a British Army officer who came to New Zealand in the 1860s and took part in the Tauranga War. He was a talented artist and created first-hand sketches of the devastating aftermath of the Battle of Gate Pa. But the thing Horatio Robley is most well known for is his collection of more than 30 mokomokai, preserved Māori heads. Today we're going to tell you how and why Robley got his hands on those heads, but first let's pick up the story where we left off. The Battle of Gate Pa's over. While Māori celebrate their victory, the British retreat to lick their wounds. A few months pass and Tauranga Māori start building a new fortification at a place called Teranga. The British had been thinking of redeploying their troops back to Waikato, but in the end, the commanders decide Māori mustn't be allowed to finish building this new pa. Here's Tauranga historian Patricia Brooks. Oh, they were determined to balance the record and restore their honour. 500 Tauranga Māori get to work digging trenches at Teranga, but the British don't give them time to finish that work. They launch an all-out assault. The situation was reversed. The British just annihilated the Māori who were digging in their trenches. They weren't quite prepared. They were caught off guard. Most of them were just killed in their half-dug trenches. By the end of the day, those trenches become a mass grave for 108 Māori warriors. The whole thing was a tragedy because it could have been so easily averted if they'd just had a few more discussions and talked their way into peace instead. They resorted to arms and fighting and that's what we had. Tauranga Māori historian Buddy Makaire says Māori in the region still commemorate both Gate Pa and Teranga today. But while Māori take a lot of pride in what happened at Gate Pa, Teranga has a very different legacy. We have stories in our hapu of um, uh, having used up all their ammunition. Um, some of um, the Māori soldiers are standing there waiting to be shot because there's no point in running away. Um, and so... Yeah, it's a pretty horrific time, um, but certainly um, um, put an end to that particular chapter of Tauranga's history. After Teranga, Tauranga Māori are forced to make a peace deal. Now, if you look at most mainstream history books, they'll say that deal was a pretty good one for Māori. 
relatively little land was confiscated, and the government even sent food to help Māori recover. But that story doesn't hold true for Buddy Makaida's ancestors. No. <laughs> the 50,000 acres they did confiscate, most of it was our land, right? So it was pretty pretty tough, and uh, right through to my grandfather's time, um, the same. It's only my generation that we're trying to, we're just getting to a point where uh, we can see our way out of there. What was the justification for taking it all from that, you know, from that one hapu? Oh, well, when you look at the map of Tauranga, you can see why. You know, the, the Tapapa Peninsula, um, which is, constitutes most of the city of Tauranga, the main city anyway, is the one that's got you know, deep water coming close to the shore, um, beautiful climate, it's a nice flat tableland, so, you know, pretty obvious choices being the best land in Tauranga, so let's take that. In Horatio Robley's time, all that hardship was far in the future. In the short term, after the peace agreement's reached, relationships between British troops and Māori improve dramatically. Here's historian Tim Walker. There were things like sports days and walker races and all those kind of things organised. And in that space, Robley again started this idea of trying to take portraits. Remember in episode one, when Robley was back in Burma? While he was there, he spent a lot of his time doing portraits of Burmese monks. Well, he does the same in New Zealand. And just like in Burma, he starts to befriend the indigenous people of Aotearoa. And there was a gradual building of, of rapport. Tauranga Māori end up allowing Robley inside some of their most sacred spaces. He sketches the inside of meeting houses of Whorinui, and even at a funeral ceremony. There's the drawing of the watercolour of the tangi of his father-in-law, you know, which is astonishing for a, a Pākehā drafts, per, you know, to be sitting in that context. Hold up there just a second. Because Tim Walker said something you might have missed. Father-in-law. Yeah, Horatio Robley ends up in a relationship with a Māori woman in Tauranga. And not just any woman. Harite Mōau, daughter of one of the highest-ranking chiefs in the entire Bay of Plenty region. So Robley formed a relationship with Harite Mōau. Um, and that's as far as I've ever gone as a former relationship because... Some Komatu have told me that actually she was presented to Robley as an act of, you know, respect for his mana, um, which seems hard to understand in one way because he's only an itinerant kind of, um, you know, um, soldier who's just until very recently been involved as part of a colonising force. I mean, uh, they would have known that he wasn't a high-ranking officer, yeah. which would have mattered. Yeah, he was 25 at the time. He was a lieutenant. Um, so it's very hard to understand how that relationship formed. It seems like Māori gained a lot of respect for Robley. They actually gave him a Māori name, Te Raupere. The sketching must have really impressed them. And this relationship with Harite gets serious pretty quickly. They, they had a child. Um, it's not clear if um, Hamiora to Raupere, that's the son, if Hamiora was born while Robley was still in New Zealand or whether Harite was simply hapu. Um, but by the time Robley left, I don't know. So at about this point, you're probably asking, what the hell's going on? We started the story with the image of a monster, a guy who's literally collecting human heads. And according to some stories, he's actually hacking them off himself. 
now we're looking at a guy who's formed a deep personal connection with Māori and even has a child with the daughter of a Māori chief. What gives? Well, the truth is, as far as we know, Horatio Robley never collected any human heads in New Zealand. To get to that part of the story, we're going to have to skip forward about 20 years. Robley leaves New Zealand in 1865, after just 20 months in the country. He leaves Harete and their child behind. We don't know why, but it seems likely he was forced to go when his unit was redeployed and that Harete didn't want to leave her home and family. Robley travels all around the world with the British Army. Eventually he retires at the rank of Major General in 1887. But in his retirement, back in London, he sees something which rekindles his passion for New Zealand. Passing one day along Brompton Road, I espied from the top of an omnibus on which I was travelling a phrenologist rearranging his window, and in the window was a Maori head. Just in case you're not familiar, a phrenologist is one of those old-timey scientists who thought you could tell stuff about intelligence and personality by measuring bumps on your skull, so you can see why they might have a human head in their window. But how did this phrenologist get his hands on a Māori head? Well, that is a very grim story, and to tell it, I've enlisted the help of Hami Pitipi, who heads the Mokomokai repatriation team at Te Papa Museum. Hami says Mokomokai have a long history in Māori culture. Heads weren't taken and preserved in that way unless they were very special people. And then, because they were so well preserved, uh, they were able to be brought out at, on special occasions. Um, and it was like bringing that person back to life again for that, for that hui or for that event. Māori didn't just preserve the heads of their ancestors. They also took the heads of their enemies. It was a way of degrading their mana and enhancing your own. Plus, it gave you a chance to relive old victories. By the way, Māori weren't alone in doing this. There are cultures all around the world who take the heads of their enemies. One missionary, William Yates, recorded a speech which he heard a warrior delivering to the preserved head of an old enemy. I'll just read it for you. You wanted to run away, didn't you? But my greenstone club overtook you, and after you were cooked, you were made food for me. And where is your father? He is cooked. And where is your brother? He is eaten. And where is your wife? There she sits, a wife for me. And where are your children? There they are, loads on their backs, carrying foods as my slaves. So that all sounds pretty grim, but things are about to get even nastier because when Europeans start visiting New Zealand more frequently in the early 1800s, they are obsessed with these preserved human heads. And that obsession leads to the deaths of hundreds, maybe even thousands of people. In the early 1800s, Māori and Northland start to get hold of modern firearms from the Europeans. They then use these guns to launch attacks on their neighbours, and it all spirals into a horrific bloodbath we now call the Musket Wars. Go back and listen to our episode about Hongi Hika for more information about that. Anyway, to get these muskets, Māori had to find something to give the European traders in exchange, and I think you can see where this is all going. Two heads were worth one musket. Uh, the same as a whole shipload of, of, of spires or of flax. It's much easier to get two heads. Uh, and, uh, and so it was really the musket 
trade and the and the intense desire by Europeans for them that 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 created the trade. The usual practice was to raid a neighboring tribe, take as many people captive as you could, kill them, and sell their decapitated heads to European traders in exchange for guns. I mean, there were even uh, descriptions of events where people would be would be tattooed in preparation for their heads to be sold and traded for muskets. Yeah, just to spell it out, these captives are being tattooed while they're still alive, so their heads can be cut off and sold. It was the people you didn't care so much about that you, and and the less you cared, the easier it was to trade. And it's been a, a human condition all over the world for many, many, many um, generations. It's hard to get past the sheer horror of this. Can you imagine being killed as part of a trade deal? Knowing your head's going to be swapped for a gun, which will then be used to kill even more of your friends and family? And as we said, this happened to thousands of people in New Zealand. But Hami Pitipi says that for Māori in the 1830s, this was literally a matter of life and death. Because if you, if you weren't able to uh, protect yourself and arm yourself... In a, in a contemporary environment, uh, I think it was really a question of, um, of ongoing survival. Eventually, in 1831, the trade in human heads was banned by British officials. But by that time, there were thousands of mokomokai in the hands of collectors and museums all over Europe. They ended up as curiosities in people's homes or in shop windows to draw in customers. Which brings us back to Horatio Robley, outside that phrenologist's shop in London, looking at the Māori head on display. And he buys it. And then he set out around Britain looking at um, preserved Māori heads in museums and buying them whenever he could. Over the next few years, Robley travels all over the UK in his search for human heads. In a word, it's an obsession. The row of heads that I have hunted, served for, waited for, begged, and when coin was not to be offered, I have paid for in exchanges away of such things as I cannot replace. I knew that I was getting a unique collection. This is the only show in the world. Robley writes about getting hold of the mokomokai in public auctions or buying them privately from museums. Sometimes he literally just stumbles across them. Dr. Hutchison of Holsmere gave me a day at his place. Lo and behold, there was a tukapu, that is, fully chiselled man's head. It was impossible to tempt the owner and some plan had to be pondered over. Thoughts of burglary might be forgiven a collector. No, Robley didn't end up stealing that head. Instead, he convinced the doctor's wife to swap it for a fancy silver bowl. Robley's house ended up full to the brim with human heads, which made him a pretty weird person to visit. Here's what one guy wrote in his diary after going to Robley's house in 1905. I called on Major General Robley and found him taking his ease at full length on a couch. Around the somewhat small room were displayed 38 preserved heads with tattooed faces. They were on tables, sideboards, mantelpiece, everywhere. The possessor of them was smiling proudly at the gruesome display. But why did he do this? The simplest answer is that Robley was just a pretty weird dude, an eccentric Victorian collector. 
there might be some truth to that. His writing about the heads has this weird, gleeful tone that's kind of tough to read. But Tim Walker says there's more to it. He says these heads were a means to an end. And the end was understanding tāmoko, the facial tattoos engraved on those heads. It's not because of an interest in the macabre. It's not because of an interest in human remains. It's not because of an interest in colonial booty. More than that, it's about the evidence of the design system that they alone kind of hold. Of course, Robley was a talented artist and he'd been interested in tattoos his whole life. Remember way back in his early 20s, he was getting tattooed by those Burmese monks? But his fascination with moko goes much deeper. The beautiful arabesques and moko patterns might, I think, commend themselves to art students and designers as well as to students of ethnology and folklore. For the native artist in Moko must be entitled to the credit of great originality and taste in his patterns, and his skill was such as to class him among the world's artists. Robley's sketches of the Moko in his collection are insanely detailed. They're more like schematics than portraits. He draws every curve of a line, every mark of a tattooist's chisel. The more... Um Moko um, he drew, the more he became completely pulled into the design system that Moko is. And so what, what he starts to actually start, um, realise that this is a design system with a set of rules, um, and every time Moko is invoked, it generates an entirely new pattern. And he goes beyond just copying the patterns he sees on the Moko Mokai. His understanding of the design system of Moko allows him to become a moko artist in his own right. Robley paints his own face in moko patterns for fancy dress parties. He gets hold of a plaster cast of a Māori chief's head and engraves moko onto it. He doodles moko patterns in the margins of letters. He makes postcards with sketches of Pākehā politicians in New Zealand with moko drawn on their faces. This might all sound a bit weird or maybe even offensive, but it's very lucky he did all this drawing. Because right at the time Robley's doing these drawings, moko's starting to vanish, for men especially. Why? Well, partly it has to do with the musket wars, because during those wars, wearing a moko was literally like painting a target on your face. One missionary who was in New Zealand during the musket wars wrote, No man who was well tattooed was safe for an hour unless he was a great chief for he might be watched until he was off his guard and then knocked down and killed and his head sold to the traders. Later on, politics and religion start to play a role in the decline of Moko. First, let's talk about religion. The Christian missionaries who came to New Zealand in the 1800s were not big fans. It makes them appear truly hideous. It is to be hoped this barbarous practice will be abolished in time among the New Zealanders and that the missionaries will exert all the influence they're possessed of to dissuade them from it. That's an extract from the journal of another early New Zealand missionary called Ledger Nicholas. Later on, when war breaks out between Europeans and Māori, attitudes against moko harden even further because tattooed faces start to be seen as a symbol of resistance to colonisation. A lot of Māori leaders who opposed colonisation, like the Māori king Tafiao, had full-face moko and encouraged other Māori to wear them too. But as the tide of war swung against Māori, 
the art was suppressed. It very nearly vanished entirely. Here's how it's put in the book, Wearing Moko, Māori Facial Marking in Today's World. For at least two generations into the 20th century, the pukanohi, fully tattooed face, was rarely seen. Although there are still aged Māori who recall their childhood and teenage years looking in awe at the faded markings on a venerable old man's face. The fact this form of art he loved so much was being lost left Horatio Robley deeply unhappy. He would refer to it as the most sophisticated art form of indigenous people. It's not quite the language he used, but that's what he's saying. And he also believed that in the future, our generations of artists would re-emerge. And when they did, um, that they needed to see um, moko in the round and in the skin. So this, in Tim Walker's opinion, is why Robley felt such a strong desire to understand, collect and preserve examples of moko. In those first few years of collecting, he took all his sketches and notes on moko mokai together and he wrote a book, Moko or Māori Tattooing. It was published in 1896. And according to Hami Pitipi, that book is one of the only reasons moko is still around today. Perhaps in some small pockets of isolated Māori communities it may have been preserved by specific tohunga, but as a generic source of knowledge, I would say he, he is foremost in, in, that, in that field uh, and able to provide that accurate description of what's there, and then we've gone on to provide accurate interpretation. People like Dave Simmons went on to translate the hieroglyphic, uh, hieroglyphic um, uh, meaning behind the the particular spiral, how it was done, where it was done, the names that were given to it. Uh, and, and, and so today we have a fairly good understanding of what a taimoko was made up of, why it's done that way, how it's done, and what's a, a no-no and what's not. Robley himself has, has contributed significantly to this body of knowledge. So this is kind of amazing. Like Hami said right at the start of the first episode, We've gone from a predator of culture to a friend of the Māori, a man whose work saved a taonga of Māori culture. But there's still that other side of Robley, the darker, more black sheepy side. Because Robley's understanding of Māori culture was kind of shallow, only skin deep, if you'll excuse my terrible pun. Like Hami just said, Robley understood the technical details of moko, but he never understood the cultural side of things. And that led to some pretty bizarre, sometimes just straight-up offensive behaviour. When he's back in London and there are Māori soldiers, part of the New Zealand forces, in London for the Boer War, on the Robley goes down to New Zealand House, organises a porphyry for them, goodness knows what it would have been like, puts on a pupu that he collected from here, paints his face a moko, as he's very good at painting his own face a moko. Um, and a tefa tefa he had. And so it would have been a very, very strange um, performance. And then afterwards he would invite them back to his bed sort of around the corner. And unfortunately for them, in some ways, there they were there with a mokumokai. Imagine something like this happening today. A group of Māori soldiers turn up in London and are greeted by an old white guy dressed in a grass skirt with his face painted in moko patterns and he's trying to perform a traditional Māori greeting despite not knowing more than a handful of words in the Māori language. Then he invites them back to his house for tea and shows them his collection of Māori heads 
mounted to the wall. Offensive doesn't even start to describe it. But Tim Walker thinks we need to think of Robley inside his own time, and also in terms of his intentions. Because he was trying, in his own weird way, to make these Māori soldiers feel welcome. There's a kindness about it, and also, if he finds out any of those young soldiers are from Tauranga, and they're related to any of the drawings and watercolours he did, he will do a copy of their ancestor for them while they're in London and give it to them to take home. So there's, there's a constant reaching out. From a modern perspective, it's kind of hard to judge Robley one way or the other. And even some of his own family couldn't forgive the things he did. He hated his grandfather. When he found out that he was uh, into heads and all that sort of thing, he wanted to know about it. This is Googie Tapsell. She's Horatia Robley's great-granddaughter. Today she's in her 80s. The man she's talking about is her uncle Hepata, Robley's grandson. One story Googie vividly remembers from her younger days is how Hepata reacted when he was sent a copy of his grandfather's book on Moko, a book which, let's just remember, is full of illustrations of preserved Māori heads. He stomped on their books, on those books there. He said, don't want to know about them. Hated them. Didn't want to know about them. Neither Googie's mother or uncle ever met their notorious ancestor. Although Robley apparently did want to meet Googie's mother. He wanted to take her back to England to, to get her educated over there. Mm. But she, she wouldn't go. I can remember Mum telling me all that and I was... I think I would have been about 12, I think. Why do you think she didn't want to go? Oh, she didn't want to leave New Zealand. She was typical Māori, you know. Uh, no, she couldn't. She, she said, poor boy, she'd call me poor boy. I know my daddy won't take me to England for my education to be, but no, she didn't want to leave New Zealand. Googie says her ancestor's legacy divided the family. Because mum had a lot of love for her grandfather. She had a lot of love, but her brother, Hepata, hated them. Maybe if Robley had met his grandchildren, he could have got a deeper understanding of Māori culture. And maybe they could have understood, in some way, what drove his obsession with collecting Māori heads. Throughout his retirement, Robley writes extensively about his plans to return to New Zealand, and part of how he hopes to get there is by selling his collection to the New Zealand government. He started off offering for the price he had paid, and then his last offer was half of the price, uh, plus a, a, a shipping, t- a, you know, a sh- ticket on a ship back to New Zealand return trip, um, and then he would do as he had had done in Britain, a sort of a, a road show of um, talking about the collection in New Zealand and charge sixpence at the door. So he was really it was a, you know attempt to get them and himself, I think, back to New Zealand. But Robley hits two setbacks. First, he suffers a series of injuries and illnesses which leave him unable to travel. And second, the New Zealand government refuses to buy the collection at any price. Partly that was because senior Māori figures in the government objected to paying money for human remains, and partly because there was just sort of a general feeling that these were relics of a dark past, which was better left forgotten. And in another personal blow, Robley runs into serious financial trouble. 
as far as I understand it, he was obviously on a major general's pension, which would have been, you know, plenty. But in 1915, I think, or 1914, he lent a lot of his wealth to his brother-in-law to invest in a, um, a marble mine. I don't quite understand the details, but anyway, he lost a lot of money um, as a result of the First World War. In the end, Horatio Robley never makes it back to New Zealand. He dies in 1930, at the age of 90. He was dirt poor, and today he's buried in an unmarked grave. This is normally where I'd end the podcast. Story's over, our black sheep's dead. But Horatio Robley has a kind of second coming, and that's inextricably linked with a different kind of rebirth, what's sometimes called the Māori Renaissance, which started around the 1970s and 80s when activists began to revive a language and culture which was nearly erased by colonisation. One side of that renaissance has been the revival of traditional tattoo, tāmoko. And I thought you might be interested in hearing what a modern moko practitioner has to say about Horatio Robley. Kia ora, kia ora. Kia ora, moko. Can you hear me right there? I can hear you nice and, nice and clear. Oh, fantastic. How are you going, bro? Oh, I'm sick, eh? It's <laughs> Still. Oh, man. It's just, it's a cough. It's lasted, like, better part of three weeks. It's driving me, driving me mental. This is Moko Nui Smith, a modern practitioner of traditional Māori tattoo. He's the brother of one of my best mates from high school. He's called Moko for short, which sometimes causes a little bit of confusion. Yeah, working with the with Moko as well is is always a bit confusing for people. They don't know if I'm taking it on as a title or if it's a branding or if it's you know some kind of self marketing thing. Moko uses Horatio Robley's book as a reference for his work. He also uses lots of other references, by the way, things like old carvings and paintings and ideas from his teachers. As a visual guide, it's it's pretty amazing. We get to see some of the finer details that that um, were made by some of the old practitioners. Like what is in there that you wouldn't find elsewhere? Just sketches of, of close-ups of Moko, the descriptions of where he was and what they were, what they were doing there, along with the people who were wearing Moko. You know, all of that stuff is, is such a valuable insight into that world. Mukul says the thing Robley's book is most important for preserving is information of how facial tattoos were created. Back in the day, Māori didn't use needles on the face. They literally carved the skin with chisels. Robley's book is one of only a handful of written sources which record how that carving was done. Sadly, it's something we are still uh, grappling with within the, the revival. It's really going to the next level of changing your body and changing um, your sense of self, not only in marking, but also in terms of changing your actual form of your body um, and opening yourself up to the elements. You know, you're physically going through an operation where you're opened up. I think there's all sorts of power and, and magic and uh, lessons that can come out of that when it's when it's done right, and that's kind of something I, I hope uh, we as Māori can get back to. It's, it's ure, isn't it? Is that the, the correct word for it? Which one? The, 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 that form of, t- of tattoo. Uh, uhi. Uhi, sorry. The way you said it is, was almost penis. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out Robley isn't the only one who commits the occasional cultural faux pas. 
But I've got to say, I found it a bit surprising how understanding people like Moko are when it comes to Horatia Robley. I think I'm still hung up on that famous photo. I can't help but feel a little shiver of disgust when I see Robley sitting so proudly in front of all those heads. But Moko has a different reaction. He thinks Robley's obsession with Moko Mokai makes sense. People kept the Moko Mokai heads because that was an ancestor or an enemy. Either way, they were kept close because they were honoured or uh, derided. You know, there was a relationship with the death which wasn't shied away from. It wasn't feared. It wasn't um, seen as a disgusting thing. It was easy for Pākehā back then to be fascinated by these weird things which they didn't have in their culture. Not only were they dead and, and from a foreign land, but they were also highly decorated. So someone like Horatio Robley, um, it's not difficult to see how he would be fascinated with these things and how he would go to get a collection. You know, for us, it's kind of a, it's a very challenging thing because we don't want our ancestors' heads away from our tribal areas in our whanau. Um, but you can see how, from the other side, they were uh, really sought after. And today, those heads are on their way back to their whānau. Before he died, Robley sold his collection to the American Natural History Museum in New York. But thanks to painstaking negotiations by the New Zealand government, Māori and museum curators, those heads were returned to Aotearoa in 2014. Today, they're sitting in a special room at Te Papa Museum, waiting to be returned home to their descendants. And down in Dunedin... There's another archive full of treasures Horatia Robley collected, which is still waiting to be uncovered. Because that book he wrote in 1896, Robley was never happy with it. He spent the next 12 years gathering even more information. He planned to publish it in a second, much more detailed book. Sadly, he died before it could be finished. But all his research for that book has survived. And today, those notes are sitting in an archive in Dunedin just waiting for a modern Mokko practitioner like Mokko Smith to uncover them. Very special thanks to Mokko Smith, Tim Walker, Patricia Brooks, Buddy McKayre and Harmi Pitipi. Just before you go, there's a couple of things I'd really like your help with. First, please spread the word about Black Sheep. Tell your friends, share the link to the show on Facebook. And don't forget, if you want to subscribe, you can get tons more Black Sheep for free. Also, go check out RNZ's other great podcasts. Actually, if you want a slightly meta recommendation, go and listen to RNZ's Podcast Hour, which is full of great recommendations of other podcasts to listen to. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. The executive producer is Tim Watkin and our sound engineer is Phil Benge. We had voice acting help from Colin Peacock, Duncan Smith, Adam McCauley and Lee Marama McLaughlin. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. 
Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.